All right, Father, we just come in Jesus' name and through his blood tonight. We thank you for the power. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. We thank you for an awesome move of the Holy Spirit tonight. And Lord, as we get into the word, we just thank you, Lord, for an open heaven, your presence, and the Holy Spirit to move upon every one of us that's going to be listening or watching this. I thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit moving upon us and giving us good soil of hearts and minds and lives, even now that we're locked in and focused to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus. As you speak through me, your word is living seeds of truth sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. And the winds of your spirit carrying this out among the nations that it's going to get where it's supposed to. And Lord, I thank you for everything and being accomplished and that through it your will to be done. And we submit it unto you. We resist the devil. We bind anything that would try to hinder this word in any way. We commit to be bound and back off right now in Jesus' name. We break your power. And Lord, I thank you. The word says that your word will not return void, but will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So Lord, we thank you for it and we believe it. We expect it even right now in the mighty name of Jesus as we get into the word of the Lord. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to minister tonight, part seven, as we get into the nation of Wales. What a mighty move of the Holy Spirit tonight. Wow. Man, it's been pretty powerful. It's uh, still kind of collecting myself here. So there's a few different things I want to talk about tonight. I don't want to rush through this. I know that the ladies went through a book where you looked at the nation of Wales, and you also looked at Azusa Street. And so I know that you guys will really appreciate some of this. But I'm going to talk about a few things maybe that that you don't know and kind of take a little bit different angle maybe than what you were thinking. There's one of the things God is doing through these sermons is also teaching along with this, not not just a historical account, but giving us some things that we need to understand. So the first scripture I want to talk about is Zechariah 4, starting verse 10. And in context, Zechariah was one of the prophets that was raised up by God to encourage the people because they had now, uh, Daniel prayed, Jeremiah, before that, had prophesied the 70 years were up, and God had heard Daniel's prayer and remembered the prophecy, and he moved upon Cyrus, and he began to send back the remnant that were going to go back and rebuild the temple, but as they were trying to do this, they faced a lot of spiritual warfare, and so Zechariah was encouraging them. And Zechariah was telling them the same hands that laid the foundation will complete it. And he was telling them by the the Lord, this is not going to be by human might and human effort, but it'll be by my spirit. He was saying all these things to encourage them because they they were weary and well-doing. But one of the things Zechariah said in this context was, he said, who has despised the days of small beginnings? That's where this comes from. In context, who has despised the days of small beginnings? And so we know from this, as we've looked at this historical account of various revivals, and we're going to continue to do so, that every revival that I've talked about has had unbelievably humble beginnings. How many can say that you see that clearly? 
if you actually really study these out, because people talk about all the souls they got saved, but if you go back to the beginning of it, of how it was birthed, it was almost always a handful of people in prayer in very, very humble beginnings. And that was a similar situation in Zechariah's day. There was a remnant back. The, what they were trying to do would have been nothing in the natural that would have been as beautiful as what Solomon did. It, it was like small beginnings. And it, it was easily, easy to get discouraged. Well, let me tell you, one of the great deceptions, the Bible says in the latter days, to watch out that nobody deceive you. And there's a lot of warnings about deception and that there would be false prophets and false teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I do believe that we're living in those days. But Satan, how many knows that the devil's been around since the beginning and he knows as much about these historic revivals as any of us? Actually, he knows a lot more about them. He was there. Uh, he was an enemy to them. He knew how they started. He small technical difficulty here. Anyway, Satan was there to oppose these revivals. And the devil knows that the way that these revivals started was in great humility. And we're living in a time, and if I could just share from my heart, being a student of revival history, I believe the devil has gone to great lengths to make sure that we never see another one again. And I'll tell you one of the ways that he's done that is he's, he's gone to great lengths to play on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the flesh, the carnality in people in the church world today because they're caught up with the lust of the eyes. They're pretty open about it. They'll even use these terminologies. They want church to kind of be like a nightclub with all of the entertainment and everything and and there they will use even those terms they'll say that that's what they're going for the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh to to just give people what they want just tell them what they want to hear you know keep services short motivational speeches make everybody feel good about themselves lust of the flesh and the pride of life you know as well as I do, we're living in a time where small gatherings of prayer for revival, like what we've seen, smaller groups coming together really pray. You know as well as I do that that's despised in the eyes of men. You know why? Pride. So Satan has gone to great lengths to play on that, that sin nature in people. Uh, just a warning, because I'm going to talk a little bit about the last days in this, but in the latter days, it seems to indicate that there would be a lot of pride. And humanism is a forerunner to the Antichrist. People more and more are beginning to move away from a concept of God because they want to be their own God. And they want to run their own life and do whatever they want to do. And 
if you look at this about deception, there's kind of been a movement, among other things, but called deconstruction of your faith. And to deconstruct would be, number one, to do away with any type of a moral absolute. So, in other words, the mindset is, well, maybe what is true for you isn't true for me. Maybe what's wrong for you isn't wrong for me. And getting away from, and then the very core of, of the beliefs of our heritage in Christianity, the very core itself, uh, getting away from core values and core beliefs. Not only is there many roads that these people would think lead to God, which is obviously a deception, but there's this hybrid form of Christianity that's emerged, I've talked a lot about, where there's no requirement to be born again. There's no requirement to adhere to the Word of God. You know, and there's no requirement to repent of your sins. It's a, it's a form of godliness, but it denies the power of salvation in repentance and the true new birth. It's not the power of God. It's something else. It's a deception. And so Satan has really been moving. Now, I'm sharing this for a reason. And let me move to the next scripture. It says, Hebrews 12, verse 26, at that time, now the writer of Hebrews is talking here about Sinai, how God came down on Mount Sinai and it shook and there was a fear. And he says, at that time, God's voice shook the earth. You remember reading about Sinai where God came down? It was like a shofar blast. I mean, it was like a major earthquake. The people were terrified. But he goes on to say, but now he has given us a promise saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but heaven also. And this statement yet once more signifies the removal of things that can be shaken, things that are created so that only things that cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us be gracious by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So there's a great shaking that's going on. You know, I was just thought about the book of Proverbs. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding. We're living in a time where I think that a lot of the church world has gotten away from the fear of the Lord and they don't understand what is holy and what's not. And basically, that's the beginning of wisdom. So if, if people are not even understanding kindergarten, little wonder that all they want is motivational speeches. The tickling of the ears. So just keep that in mind as I go because I'm going to deal a little, just a little bit about end-time prophecy, and I want you to see some of these things as we go. We've moved into some perilous times, but I do believe that as darkness has increased on the earth, God has another major move of His Spirit, and it's going to be so intense because it's going to combat the darkness. So it's going to require a greater intensity. All right, so let's go ahead and look at this. So we dealt last time with the revivals of 1857 through 59. Of course, it, the outworking of it over time, we know D.L. Moody was powerfully used in that. 
But now, fast forward around 50 years. Something began to happen. I remember looking at a history book when my daughter was in school and I was helping her with some of it. And when it came to the 20th century, it was interesting that we had left the previous century. Now it was going into the 20th century, okay? And as it was going into the 1900s, it said the 20th century, a world at war. I thought that was really interesting, a world at war. We, let me try to rabbit trail and then dovetail back in. See, if you don't understand the nation of Israel, you're never really truly going to understand end time prophecy. The Lord came to Israel. That was the 69th week of Daniel's prophecy. The Messiah was cut off. God gave Israel space to repent. That was what, around 33 AD approximately, 32, 33, right in there. And God gave them another around, around 40 years approximately. If you count when Jesus started his ministry, it was around 30 A.D. And then add 40 years. So that goes to 70 A.D. Israel did not repent. So God allowed uh, Titus and Vespasian to come in and annihilate the Jews. I mean, scatter them, tear down their temple. Not one stone left on the other. Destruction. And then the gospel went to the ends of the earth. And God seemed to take his finger and push pause on end-time prophecy. It did not unpause until God started dealing again with Israel because prophecy has a lot to do with the nation of Israel. Not everything, but a lot. And so in around the late 1800s, I want you to picture train tracks. God began to do something new. We had all these revivals in the 17 and 1800s, okay, but now we're moving into a different century and things are changing. So it's like a train track. One side of it, God begins now to move with Israel. The other side of it, God begins an altogether new and greater move of his spirit among the church. And let me show you. In the late 1800s, a man by the name of Herzl began to have a vision for a nation of Israel, and it was called Zionism. And he began to really be burdened that Israel needed a nation. And he began to, to, to get together uh, a study of, we've got to have the Hebrew language, uh, you know, not just in our synagogues, in, in the, read in the scriptures, but to be spoken by the people. And so there began to be this movement, that direction. And it wasn't until World War I now, let me, let me say this. The shaking that was going on in the earth was unbelievable. It was now time, the fullness of time, for God to begin to take his finger off of end-time prophecy and start things back again. And with that, that would mean that there had to be an Israel, and things had to start moving that way. And as the devil saw that his time was running out, the, the rage, I mean, the world went to war. I mean, it was a shaking of the earth. And, of course, Satan always overplays his hand. But in World War I, what happened was the nation of Turkey had the land of Israel, which didn't really exist as the land of Israel. It was just a barren wasteland. But it was under their occupation. World War I broke the power of the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, off of the land. So what happened? 
wealthy Jews began to go there and buy the land from the, the people that lived there, the Arabs and others, for a lot more than what it was worth at the time. But the land got freed up. At the same time that that was happening, the late 1800s, God was beginning to move in a new way through a man by the name of John Alexander Dowie who was seeing tremendous healings. Not only him, but there was a man by the name of Charles Parham in Topeka, Kansas, got a facility known Stone's Folly, got the building, had a Bible school there. I think her name was Agnes Osman. I could be wrong. But they were believing God for a move of, of the Holy Spirit, and she was believing to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This was pretty much not heard of at this time. But sure enough, she was baptized in the Holy Ghost. And as she began to speak in tongues, it started something in that Bible school where others began to pursue it. Charles Parham began to believe it's for today. Did everybody see what I said? You're beginning to see now a new move of God that would not only be for the harvest as we previously seen, but it was a move that was going to restore back the healing ministry, the baptism and the Holy Ghost, the gifts of the Spirit back. And so while God was moving to break things open in the natural for the nation of Israel to begin to move that direction, God was breaking things open in the spiritual for us to be restored back, Book of Acts, Christianity again. So this was something that was like two sides of a train track going on at the same time. And God was beginning to move in end-time prophecy. I believe that the revivals up until this point had made tremendous impact. But I believe when we moved into the 20th century, we moved into an end-time outpouring of the Holy Ghost that would be connected to end-time prophecy. Does that make sense? And I did a study myself years ago, and one of the things I looked at was from the government study on earthquakes. And to sum it up, you can look this up for yourself. It's, it's on websites. It was so many years ago, I don't remember now. But there were secular studies that showed over the last hundred years that earthquakes have been increasing in their frequency and in their severity. Jesus said one of the signs of his coming would be an increase in earthquakes. And with that said, you can almost see, just like God came down on Sinai and it just shook, you can almost see that as we moved into the 1900s that there was a great shaking in the spirit realm and there was even beginning to be an increase of earthquakes and shaking in the natural realm. It has to be connected. But I want to focus more on the Welsh Revival. All over the world, several thousands of miles apart, God poured out His Spirit in the early 1900s in a dramatic way that shook the world. Just like Mount Sinai, some felt the earthquake of 1905 that shook our West Coast 
was linked to the incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place at Azusa. Isn't that something? Prophets and others that have studied this have felt just like God came down at Sinai and there was fire, there was smoke, and there was a shaking. God came down in Los Angeles, California, and there was, there was literally a cloud in that building that people saw, a literal cloud in the building. There was literal fire that was seen over the building. And also there was a great shaking that took place even in the natural. Like all other outpourings, we have heard of certain places, especially here in America. We talk about wells. We talk about Azusa. But God was moving during this time all over the world. There was a tremendous outpouring in the early 1900s in the Far East, in Africa, in Europe, and obviously the Americas. During this time frame, we started moving into end-time prophecy, as I had mentioned. Now, I want to look at the Welsh revival tonight, and then I want to talk about a little bit about spiritual warfare, and then I want to pray with you guys. So you can't talk about the Welsh revival without talking about a man by the name of Evan Roberts because God really used him to be kind of a catalyst of the revival. Evan died in his early 70s. Here's the sad thing. So when I talk about this, the Welsh Revival was probably, in all the historical revivals I've studied, the revival in Wales was probably one of the most intense, sovereign moves of God of all of them. I mean, it stands out. And Evan Roberts was used so powerfully, yet Evan, even though he lived to be in his 70s, probably only preached about six years of his life at the most, which is, to me, very sad. He was born, and I'm going to explain what happened. He was born in 1878, and he died in 1951. Yet all through uh, from 1905 till, you know, 1950, you didn't really hear hardly anything of him after the revival in Wells. He went into seclusion, which I'll talk about. He was born in South Wales. He had 13 brothers and sisters. Good Lord, that is a big family. He grew up in a good Christian home. At the age of 12, Evan was working in the mines, digging coal and loading the pit ponies to help his family's needs. He had a good work, work ethic. He was also the religious one of the family. Even all of them were Christian. All of them loved the Lord, went to church, but he was the one that there was an obvious call on his life. He took his Bible to work. As a very young man, 12, 13 years old, he'd take his Bible. Other people would be cussing and smoking and all that. He'd be over there reading his Bible. He would talk to them about the Scriptures. There was even that Bible he carried, he kept on a shelf in the mine, and there was a fire, and it became known as kind of the, the burnt Bible and it was something that was talked about in the Welsh Revival. It's kind of a historical thing. But in his 20s, early 20s, he was so sensitive to the Holy Spirit, he would have conversations under his breath with the Lord while walking around. And people, some people that knew him would see him over there kind of look like he was talking to himself. And they were worried about him. Maybe he was a little weird. 
But God was teaching Evan how to be really sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading because he was going to need that. Now, the beginnings of the Welsh Revival, Wales has actually had several moves of God before this and after this, just like America has had other moves of God. But this was really the most powerful move historically that we know of. But how did this revival really start? So there was obviously people praying, because you're never going to have a move of God without people praying. But there was a, a Welshman that was in Pennsylvania by the name of W.B. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, or Mayer, how you pronounce it. And he began, he was a great preacher. I mean, he was real eloquent, and, and people really enjoyed his ministry. But there was a time when he became so burdened for souls and the lack of seeing uh, Book of Acts Christianity, it broke him. And he began to realize how shallow his ministry really was. And he began to have an incredible burden for the nation of Wales, which was his homeland because he was Welsh. And so he went back to Wales, and he began to preach with a fire, I mean a fervency, that was really not well received. Just like you remember Wesley, I mean Wesley got touched so powerfully he, his, his heart was burning in him, and what he went back among his, his people there, the Anglican church, and preached, and it was not well-received. So this is not unique, and the same thing with the Cambridge Revival. Remember McGreedy? He was a man of prayer and fasting and would preach it straight, and I mean, his fiery preaching of repentance was not well-received in the Carolinas. That's why he left and went out to Kentucky. Well, W.B. Meyer came to Wells and began to preach, but his sermons convicted people. And he began to preach with a fervency and a burden for souls and a burden for the church to see more that the religious people didn't like. They were content in their lukewarm Christianity. There, there are people that they just kind of want enough of God. They kind of want God on their terms. They just want their little religion. They don't want anybody to rock the boat. They don't want to be convicted. They don't want to have to do any more than what they're doing. They, and they just kind of want things on their terms. And when somebody comes in like this and starts preaching under an anointing and they're getting convicted, they don't like it. And so he had this fair amount of persecution, but he was like a spark in wells. And there were others that were beginning to get this, this urgency, this fervency in their prayer. There was now something in their voice. There was now a passion that they didn't have before. God was beginning to stir something in wells. And one of the men that God was using was also a man by the name of Seth Joshua. Now, Evan was having, back at home, Evan was having powerful encounters with God. As a matter of fact, the Lord would visit him at night in his sleep, and the glory would come on him so powerfully. He had these glorious encounters in the night, and, and Evan talked a little bit about it, and people would ask him, his family would say, what is it like? And he's like, I really don't know how to describe it other than it's just like heavenly. And Evan was going to go off to Bible school and study, but he didn't really want to leave home because he was scared that he would miss those encounters with God at night. But he ended up going. 
And while he's there at school, some of his friends, Evan was being stirred just like others. Evan was being stirred for more. He didn't really understand what was going on within him, but there was a desperate cry for more. And so out of his hunger for God, him and some of his friends found themselves at Seth Joshua's meetings. In these particular meetings, as Seth was ministering, there was a phrase that became famous where Seth was saying, bend us, O Lord. And what that means is that you would make us pliable to whatever you need us to be. Take out of us what needs to go, put in us what needs to come, change what needs to be changed, but don't leave us like we are. Let us be pliable in your hands or bend us, O Lord. When he said that, something shot down into Evan Roberts that hit him like an arrow. And he felt that so deep in him, he began to weep. Other people didn't really understand what was going on in Evan. But he began to say, bend me, Lord, do something in me. And he had this desperate cry for God that God had put in him. And Evan was, was really interceding. And I read one account where he had a vision at some point, I don't remember exactly when it was, where it was like a cash register when you go cha-ching, you know, and there's a ticket that comes out, and it said like 100,000 souls, and it was given to him. But in this particular account, after it said Joshua was there, and he had, he had had this deep encounter with God, he went back into his room, and he was in deep prayer, and he had a vision, and then this particular vision he saw the nation of Wales, and it was picked up from the earth and was floating in the air. And a hand from heaven came down like this and was touching Wales. And he knew that God had promised him 100,000 souls. And his friend, Sidney Evans, just kind of casually walks into the room, not knowing that Evans in this place of, of having a vision and everything, and Sidney saw him, and Evan's sitting there, and Evan looks at him. And when he does, Sidney said there was something in his eyes, and there was like a shining on his countenance. And Evan said to him, do you believe that God can give us 100,000 souls? And Sidney was gripped with the Spirit when he said it. And Sidney was saying, I couldn't say anything, but yes, I believe. And so Evan wanted to leave where he was at. He felt led to go back to his hometown. And he goes back to Mariah Chapel, his home church. God was not moving there. And Evan himself was quite young. He was in his, his 20s or so. And other, his friends were very young. And he goes there and he tells the pastor, could we have a, a series of meetings? You know, can I meet with the young people? I want to share something on my heart. And the pastor allowed him to share. And so they had some meetings, and he and a few young people were there, and they began to pray. God began to move. But see, when Evan first started sharing, don't despise the days of small beginnings. Because most people left. There was a handful of younger people there in the prayer meetings. Very few remained. And Evan was bearing his heart that he felt God had 100,000 souls. You got to understand... When you go into somewhere where God's not moving, it's dead and dry, and you supposedly heard from God for 100,000 souls, nobody really believed him. But there was a group of young people there that stuck around. They felt something going on in them, and they began to pray. 
And in that humble place with a handful of people, God began to move among those young people. Man, and as God began to move, it was in a relatively short amount of time that the Holy Spirit began to fall in Wales. It was probably within about maybe six months that they saw 100,000 souls. I mean, it was pretty quick. The Holy Spirit moved so powerfully in Wales over the next couple years 1902 to 1904, that brothels were turned into chapels. Men would go in there, you know, for a brothel with the ladies, and the ladies had gotten saved, and instead of getting what they came for, they got a sermon and a song service. That really happened. I know it's funny. The bars and the dance halls shut down and also became like little churches. Alcohol was no longer being purchased. These places turned into little chapels, little houses of worship. And I know you know some of these stories, but the pit ponies were the horses that were trained to go down into the mine, and they would load them up with coal, and those horses would carry that back out. And so these were called the pit ponies. But the thing was that they were, they were taught to do their job by all these cuss words, and now that all the miners were getting saved, they didn't want to cuss anymore, and so the horses would just sit there and look at them. And they were getting frustrated, and so the owners of the, the mining company said, well, man, we're going to have to replace the horses. So they had to get rid of those and get new ones and retrain them. Bibles, the Bible Society said during this time, the Bibles could not be printed fast enough to keep up with the demand. The Super Bowl of that day would have been soccer. And, of course, in history, they had a certain time when it was like the championship. It would be just like what we know here in America as the Super Bowl. The whole nation was caught up in it. And you can go back and look in Welsh history and see for yourself that it says, and I think it was 1903, somewhere around there, shut down because of the revival. They didn't even have their Super Bowl that year. The business hours had to change. Businesses had to shut down earlier to accommodate people getting to the church services. Because if they stayed open, nobody was going to shop anyway and they themselves wanted to go to the services. So basically, businesses were shutting down early to accommodate the revival. The political scene was changed. Politicians couldn't even have political rallies to be voted in the office, go through and have political rallies. They couldn't even do it because nobody was showing up to their political rallies. They had to lay off policemen because crime rates dropped so radically that they no longer needed their services. So from 1902 to 1904, the Holy Spirit had exploded in the nation of Wales to such a degree that it impacted the whole of Wales and the whole of society. It was undeniable that God was moving. 
Now, we know the meetings uh, at Wells were really powerful. The gifts were at work. People didn't really understand everything going on. But, I mean, in the nation of Wells, people were getting so powerfully touched in the meetings that in actual fact, some people were being baptized in the Holy Spirit and tongues were heard in the revivals. There was a man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan that pastored a very influential church, uh, Westminster Chapel, I believe, but he was a very famous preacher, world-renowned at that time, and he marveled at those young people in Wales that were being used so mightily of God. Evan Roberts was very young, but he was getting up, and, and, and he was just trying to be led by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes he would just sit for a long period of time. Other times maybe get up and share a brief message, you know, or there would be a song that was sung, but the Holy Spirit was moving so intense that people were just weeping and being convicted of their sins and repenting and getting right with God. And, but the gifts were in operation. Evan would know things. He would have words of knowledge. And people were just caught up under the anointing. And so it drew some criticism from people that didn't understand. And we know that every move of God that's ever been and ever will be, that is, God is moving very powerfully, there's going to be a little bit of flesh or demonic here and there that tries to creep in, that simply means that we have to correct it. Amen? You don't throw out the entire move of God just because there's a few things that aren't right here and there. You just correct it. But there began to be a real attack. And unfortunately, it, ha it was effective. So what was happening was there was a twofold attack of the devil. Number one, it came from the religious Pharisees of that day. How many know Jesus' greatest enemies were the Pharisees, okay? The religious people. They began to come against Evan Roberts with criticism. They didn't like the way that he was handling the services. They didn't like the way he was doing things. They were accusing him of this, that, and the other. The religious leaders criticized him for operating in the spirit. They didn't understand it. They criticized his age, that he wasn't old enough to lead, and they criticized his methods. Of course, they were very unorthodox. See, the services had no structure. You get a whole group of people in there, and there's no order of any kind. You're just, Evan's just trying to be like, Holy Spirit, what are you wanting to do? And next thing you know, there's a song that's sung. Or there would be a message. Or then there would be an appeal to get right with the Lord. I mean, it was just being led by the Lord. So religion always wants things to be in man's order, man's control, and this had zero of that. And so the religious community had a problem with him. Evan was too sensitive and took the critics to heart, and he got depressed. Evan's story reminds me of Elijah the prophet that got depressed. It's very similar. And this opened the door to the Jezebel spirit to step in during his fourth battle with depression. Jezebel shut him down and played a role in making him ineffective for the work of the Lord. So what happened was also the newspapers kind of criticized and were saying that he was hypnotizing people. They didn't understand. They didn't understand the gifts. You got to just keep this in mind, River of Life. Of course, 
the religious people are going to have a problem with the move of God. You might as well expect it to be so. Of course, the secular newspapers are not going to understand it. You can't let that get to you. And that's what Evan did. He, he felt it was a, per, he took it personal and he got depressed. And basically kind of like a mental breakdown, he went into a fourth depression. It shut him down. And there was a lady by the name of Jesse Penn Lewis that stepped in and it was a Jezebel spirit big time. But here's the sad thing. Pentecost, I believe, was to be birth in Wales. They were already seeing some people baptized in the Holy Spirit. They heard tongues. I believe this was God's plan, was that the revival was morphing from being all these people getting saved, and it was going to intensify into the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the restoration of gifts. It was moving that way, but Satan attacked. Evan got shut down with depression and a Jezebel spirit, and basically the Holy Spirit had to jump from the nation of Wells all the way down to our west coast and land on Bonnie Bray Street and ultimately at Azusa Street in the mission. And God had to finish his work there that had begun in Wells. It was the same move. But let me tell you, I'll talk more about this with the Susan Street. I just want to say it in passing. Some of the people of influence that really embraced the previous moves of God, some of them may turn around and vehemently persecute the next move. G. Campbell Morgan was a very well-known preacher, very well-respected in, in a large influential church in England. He marveled at the Welsh revival. He was astounded that God could use young people like that. He believed it was a true move of God, but he was also the very one that looked at Azusa Street and said it was the last vomit of Satan and persecuted it too. You see what I'm saying? Just because, and, and it took a different form. When, it got, when the Holy Spirit got to Azusa, it became more about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the restoration of the gifts and tremendous healings and miracles. So what had begun in Wells changed in that way. It morphed into that. And one of the leaders of that time persecuted him. I think it was H.A. Ironside, if I'm not mistaken, said it was insanities worthy of a madhouse. R.A. Torrey, who wrote a book about, I have a book of his on the gifts of the Spirit, said, Azusa Street, emphatically not of God. I mean, we all know now that they're wrong, but at the time, and I've seen it in my generation, I've seen when the 90s revivals hit, I've seen people that were Pentecostal and try to tell me it was not of God. They were flat wrong. It was God, and it changed my life, and millions of people around the world, millions of people saved. But the whole time, some of these leaders, spirit-filled leaders, by the way, are saying it's not of God. And that's why Steve Hill preached that famous sermon on if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a ditch. You better be careful who you're following and listening to. So Jesse Penn Lewis was a female um, preacher of the time that wrote some books, and she had some good things to say. 
but there was a mixture. And she got into some error in her teaching where she was so focused on suffering and the negative, like going through things, that you suffer terribly in life, sharing somehow in the crucifixion of Christ or something. It was odd. And so her fellow ministers, men of wisdom, tried to correct her and tell her she was off, but she would not receive the correction. She doubled down. And so when Evan was so mightily used of God like that, he got a lot of attention because of it. But when he went into this depression, she seized the opportunity to bring him under her wing. She took him out of the nation of Wales, where God had put him, and brought him, her husband was along for the ride, you know, brought Evan into their estate there in England, and she saw his depression as being like from the Lord, and this was a way of like sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So instead of getting the devil off of him, she was kind of reinforcing a deception there, number one. Number two, she began to be extremely controlling over him to the degree that she would not let other men of God speak into his life that God was trying to use to snap him out of the depression. She would get in between their letters or in between their communication and not allow it. Not only was it that controlling, she also would not permit his family to come see him. Wow. Evan's going along with this. His mental state wasn't well, but I'm thinking, so also, by the time this lady got done with Evan, she had him convinced that he was operating in demonic activity and that what had happened in Wales was actually of the devil and that the gifts of the spirit he was operating in were actually demonic, or demonic activity. She did a number on this guy. She completely made him ineffective. It's a Jezebel spirit. And Evan sadly never snapped out of it. He never shook it off and understand that he lived before it. there was teachings on the Jezebel spirit. Okay, you know, bear that in mind. But he never shook it off. He never dealt with it. He ne- and Evan lived the rest of his life kind of in seclusion. He would write poetry. It was, some of it was kind of depressing. Uh, he never really preached again. He never really did anything from that point. Once that Jezebel spirit got a control over him, it just shut him down. So... With just a handful of intercessors, Wells saw an outbreak of revival that saw well over 100,000 new births within a short amount of time. Crime rate dropped, taverns and brothels out of business, coal mines hindered, Bibles couldn't be printed fast enough. The nation of Wells was shaken with the power of God. The Welsh revival did not stay within the borders. It swept through Ireland, Scotland, and England. It ended up sweeping through Scandinavia, Eastern Europe. Hundreds of thousands were swept into the kingdom. It eventually landed on our west coast, 
And from that revival in Azusa Street, Pentecost spread to the entire planet. In Los Angeles, Bartleman was a great intercessor, a man of prayer. He began to deeply intercede for revival. He handed out literature about the Welsh revival, trying to get people hungry for revival. He would write to Evan Roberts, and Evan Roberts wrote him back. And it encouraged him so much. William Seymour was in earnest prayer five to seven hours a day on Bonnie Bray Street, and a revival simply jumped from Wells to Azusa Street, exploded, and went to the nations of the earth. So this was a major end-time outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But let me just warn you that there's three demonic spirits that will try to attack revival, and you can see them in this Welsh revival. But there's also two, you can kind of expect this. I want River of Life, please expect these things so that if they do happen, you're not going to be caught unaware and it's not going to kind of knock you sideways. Remember that the religious people are not ever going to love the move of God. They will never like tongues. They will never like people falling or shaking. They're not going to like unstructured services. They're not going to like free worship. Religious people are demonized, and they don't like the move of the Holy Spirit. Don't expect them to. Don't try to argue with them. Don't try to win them over. Did Jesus sit around and get on his hands and knees and beg the Pharisees to believe in him? No. Jesus just simply went to where they would believe, okay? Secondly, don't expect the heathen to accept the move of God. Newspapers, people like that, don't expect it to be favorable. A lot of times, historically, there have been really negative write-ups, etc., against revivals, a lot of criticism. Why? Satan is stirring up that twofold attack. That's what came against Evan Roberts and Wells, but Evan let it affect him. The same thing has happened to other people. They just shake it off. Who cares? Don't let it get to you. Don't take it personal. Just keep going on with God. All right, here's the three demonic spirits against revival. Number one is a religious spirit. This religious spirit was the very demonic spirit behind the criticism that came against Evan. Oh, he's hypnotizing people. It was a, a religious spirit is critical of the anointing. It, it is negative and judgmental and critical of the move of God. The second spirit you see against the Welsh revival was Jezebel. The Jezebel spirit is serious. It causes depression. Look at Elijah. He was coming up against Jezebel, probably Israel's greatest prophet in many ways, the most anointed. I mean, who is before or after Elijah? You know he stands out, right? Yet Elijah went into some deep, dark depression and wanted to die when he came under attack of a Jezebel spirit. It's witchcraft. That's what came against Evan Roberts. A Jezebel spirit will offer counterfeit revelation. Don't forget that. Jezebel's teach. Jezebel's prophesy but it's another spirit. Also, it's very rebellious. 
I'm not trying to speak ill of Jesse Penn Lewis, but she didn't come under authority. People, her peers, people of authority, tried to correct her. She wouldn't receive correction. She, she rebelled. Also, a Jezebel spirit is extremely controlling. All right, so number, that's the second spirit is Jezebel. The third one is Leviathan. Leviathan is the spirit that operates through pride, it also is a counterfeit revelation spirit. But it's the accuser of the brethren. That's why you see accusations coming against Evan and against the revival. It was that Leviathan spirit playing on people like the writers of the newspaper, etc., to try to accuse, falsely accuse those three spirits we need to know a little bit about them. If, you're, if people are listening to this and you're saying, as you've been listening to historic revivals, you're getting something out of this, you're hungry, you find that your heart is burning within you, you want more and you're desperate, I encourage you to do a little bit of study on these three spirits because it is very likely when you see a move of God that you're a part of that you may face these spirits. And you need to have some type of information there that you can know what you're dealing with, okay? But it's sad because I'm going to close with this, but to me, the story of Evan Roberts was really sad because I, there's no way that God was through with him in those short couple years that he saw that revival. And there's no way anybody's ever going to convince me that God put some depression on him and shut him down like that. That wasn't God, that was the devil. And Evan made the mistake of allowing this stranger that he did not know this lady take him under him under her wing and and begin to control him like that he should have went to his family he should have went back to Mariah Chapel to his pastor that he knew and he should have let them pray for him he should have got his friends like Sidney Evans and others that knew him to get around him and pray for him he should have asked them, can we maybe do a fast for a couple days and ask God to break this, this attack and let's move on with the revival. Let's move on with God. He should have done that instead of moving out of Wales to England under the control of a controlling woman and get completely shut down. So let's learn from this that we cannot take criticism. We can't take the attacks of the devil personal. We can't let ourselves get into a depression and we can't let strangers come in and begin to suck us into some weird web of deception. God has put people in our lives that they're the ones that know us and we need to get around family and friends whenever we're going through difficult times and agree together in prayer and get the breakthrough. Amen? All right. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. The Welsh Revival, incredible. And Lord, I thank you that we ask you do it again, Lord, but greater. We're living in perilous times. But you said where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You said thick darkness, gross darkness would be in the earth, but your glory would be seen upon your people, and nations would come to that light. Lord, we're asking you, Lord, in these latter days, as you promised, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Lord, we ask you for an outpouring Lord, that will cause a shaking among your people. Things that are not of you are going to come down. That which is of you is going to come up. Crooked places are going to be made straight. 
hindrances are going to be cleared out of the way. Lord, that you would clean house as you pour out your spirit, that revival would come and you would purify a bride to meet the Lord in the air. And Lord, that the end time harvest would yield because it's not by our human might and effort. It's going to be by the power of your spirit that these things are accomplished. It is not going to be the power of charismatic personalities. It's not going to be the power of smoke and lights. It's not going to be the power of money and facilities. It's only going to be accomplished by the power of the Holy Ghost. And so, Lord, we ask you to do it again, but greater. Thank you for these revivals, but do them in our day, Lord. Let us see the wonders of God today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.